morning, everyone. Good morning. It's nice to see all of you here. <laughs> um, I always feel really so uh, moved when I see everybody here because it's just you're all in one place and I love you all. So it's so <laughs> nice. Um, I want to start by thanking our teacher, Galen Roshi, for inviting me to speak and also sharing all these teachings that have opened the way to all of us. Um, and I also thank all of you for responding to the um, impulse to come this morning because you could easily be in bed <laughs> <laughs> or in the garden or wherever else you could be. So this impulse toward practice is a it's very special and it's it's rare. And so I, I thank you for responding to it. Um, and I also wanted to say a couple of things about the um, violence that we've been hearing about. Um, it's um, one time, a long time ago, a friend of mine came, uh, we were, it was a school day and she came into the before school and asked me, what did Buddhists do about, what did Buddhists say about this? And um, so I always think people might be wondering that, you know, when we are going through a crisis. And in some way, we're the same as anybody else. Zen people are responding, but we also have, we're grounded in our practice. We're grounded in this spiritual practice and these teachings that give us a grounding. And um, so it, no matter what we respond to, joy or sorrow, we're grounded and we're responding from that, that place of stability. Um, so it gives us stability and it also gives us uh, spaciousness. Um, the sitting in Zazen helps our mind to see the space around all our thoughts, experience that. And the teachings also do that for us. So that spaciousness is very valuable in times of crisis. And we also respond according to our own abilities, just like anybody else and our own training. So depending on what, we, what we're good at or what we're, what we're able to do, we, we respond. Um, and we've, our practice teaches us not to turn away and, um, so we do engage, and it also uh, teaches us the pitfalls of um, erecting barriers with labels and stories. So, um, so that's what I wanted to say <laughs> about the how we how we might respond. So I'm starting this morning with a little anecdote or a little uh, tidbit that I raised one time a long time ago in a talk. It was from Annie Dillard, and it's about um, how we see things, how we notice things. So she wrote about seeing versus missing the world around us. Um, she tells a story of a time when she was six or seven years old, and she was growing up in Pittsburgh. She used to take one of her own pennies that was a precious uh, thing for her to have pennies as a kid 
and she would hide it for someone else to find <laughs> out on the sidewalk or something. I'm going to scoot this down a little bit. So maybe it won't make so much noise. Um, so she would hide it, hoping that people would find it, these little pennies. Um, and uh, she would draw in chalk on the sidewalk signs to tell the lucky passerby, <laughs> surprise ahead. <laughs> <laughs> or money this way. <laughs> um, so she's someone who grew up to... Um, to really love the study of the natural world. And um, she's really inspired other people to look closely at the natural world. Um, she said that she used to be able to see the flying insects in the air. She says that I would look and see ahead and see not a row of trees, but um, she would pick out all these flying insects because she was so interested in insects at that time in her life. She says, but I lost interest, I guess, for I dropped the habit. Now I see birds. Um, probably some people can look at the grass at their feet and discover all the crawling creatures. And she says, I would like to know grasses and sedges and care then my least journey into the world would be a field trip, a series of happy recognitions. And she quotes Thoreau, who said, um, in an expansive mood, exalted, what a rich book might be made about buds, including perhaps sprouts. <laughs> um, and that also reminds me of a story. I think I read it in Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, uh, or maybe it was an interview that she uh, was when she was speaking. But she says that one of the tests for new botanists, botany, botan, botany students, the teacher would lead them out into a prairie and say, find 10 plants. And if the students started walking away, they failed the test <laughs> because you just have to look down and you'll probably find many more than 10 plants. You should try that. I, I definitely have. And it's, it's a delightful study. So just look down and just see right there where you are. Um, so in ancient China, all the way back to the 11th century before the common era, there were these bronze mirrors. Now, every time I think about mirrors, I think about Louise, precious mirror wisdom. <laughs> it's her, her Dharma name. Is that right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so these mirrors, they've found them since that time. They found them in tombs, and then many of them were passed down through families, through the generations, generations. and until the Song Dynasty, in the 10th century of the common era, these would have been made of, uh, they would have been round and the, they were made of bronze. So you can't, you don't, I, I imagine that they wouldn't be all that reflective. You could see, but you wouldn't see like we can see with glass now. Um, and the backs of the shiny surface would have had these elaborate decorations on them sometimes including eyelets for hanging the mirrors. 
Uh, and it wasn't until the Qing dynasty in the 17th century that we had uh, glass, glass mirrors. So if you look at them, you'll see that um, they wouldn't have given this very distinctive reflection, but um, you could probably see your face in them and perhaps just the outline. Uh, they would have needed a lot of polishing and um, just like we, our brass fixtures do now. So we often hear of this symbol of the mirror used to represent the mind that doesn't hold on to thoughts, perceptions, and feelings, um, and also doesn't project thoughts and perceptions onto what comes before it. And it's kind of a, a wonderful ideal of what uh, our mind can be, that we're not bringing a preset story to what we see, and we're not holding on to what we've already seen before, and then um, wanting the rest of the re reality to be the same way. So that's that, that vision of the mirror in our practice. And in the song, Jewel, the song of the Jewel Mirror Samadhi, we hear Dong Shan's claim that suchness, what, what is just reality, what's, what's real in front of us, suchness, is like facing a jewel mirror, form and image behold each other. You are not it. In truth, it is you. So the body is standing in front of the mirror, and it's obviously not the same as the mirror image, but it's also not anybody else. <laughs> I mean, it is you standing there. So um, we can see the mirror image of suchness it's right there in front of our eyes. What is it about the body and mind that make up the self and prevents us from seeing what's right in front of our eyes? So I think about Annie Dillard training her mind to see certain things. And we, we, uh, we just miss a lot. We can't, we can't see everything. So back in April, when we began this practice period, I mentioned in my first talk on the Saturday session that the mirror is a, a one mirror that's at the center of our tradition um, with the sixth ancestor, Hui Nang. So I said in that talk that Hui Nang applied the emptiness teaching from the Diamond Sutra and the Vimalakirti Sutra to the reality of Buddha nature. And now I'm going to tell that story again here, just so we can link Hui Nang's mirror to one of one that we see in a later encounter between two students of Zen. When Hui Nang's teacher himself, Hong Ren, asked his monks to write a poem expressing their understanding, the head monk, Shan Shui, wrote a verse and placed it on a wall. And he described a mirror covered in dust. So you can think of that image of a mirror covered in dust. If our, we, we say we are participating in Buddha nature, but why can't we tell? Why can't we know and always feel it or have access to it? It's our minds are covered in the dust of obscurities and, and bad habits of mind and that sort of thing. So he wrote about that. His vision accorded with this sutra that we have called the Tathagata Garbha Sutra about Buddha nature. 
And it's the idea that Buddha nature is part of who we are before, after, and in the midst of everything and anything that happens. So his, his poem used a dualistic metaphor to describe something that wasn't dualistic. He wrote, the body is the Buddha tree, that, sorry, the body is the Bodhi tree. The mind is like a luminous mirror, constantly strive to keep it polished and pure and never let dust collect. So there's this duality there between the body and the mind, between purity and dust. So the sixth ancestor, Hui Nang, who was living in that monastery and working in the kitchen, heard that, that uh, poem and he thought that's not quite right. And he asked somebody write, to write his verse up on, and put it up on the wall. So in his, he proclaimed that the mirror is always already clear and there's no need to wipe away dust. So here's Hui Nam's verse. From the beginning, Bodhi has no tree. The luminous mirror also has no stand. Buddha nature is always pure. Where could dust settle? So he takes the stand out from under the mirror. Um, he shows the mind of no abode, dwelling in stillness without support. And he insists on the clarity of Buddha nature without that labor of wiping away the dust of delusions and confusions. So that, when I talked about that earlier story, I ended the discussion of Hui Nang and Shang Shui by saying that while we might favor Huang Nang as non-dualistic, uh, Shan Shui's vision that obscurations cover that vision is also valuable. So we don't wanna just throw him out. <laughs> there's, there's something to be said for what he says. Um, so this morning, I wanna talk about the image of the mirror to see um, about what sitting meditation has to do with being awake to the meaning and the import of our lives. I hope that if you don't have a, a sitting practice yet, that it doesn't make you feel left out. So just take, take the talk or any part of it for what it gives you and don't worry about the rest. So I come here every weekday morning and, and also on Sundays and sit in meditation for 45 or 50 minutes. And we sit here together in silence and we have these half day meditation retreats where we can come and sit together in Zazen for a long period of the day. We sit and then we do walking meditation. We sit a little more Then we do temple cleaning. We hear talks, we eat really yummy food. <laughs> um, and then we also have these five day sessions or meditation retreats where we do the same thing, just longer, more the full day. Um, so we're, over the years of sitting Zazen, I've experienced many things during these, these sitting sessions, these meditation sessions. And I've definitely felt many, just, I can't even name the benefits, benefits of having a regular meditation practice. Many, many, many. Um, but I've, there's just this funny thing that I've noticed is that it seems to be so radically different, this sitting quietly 
with other people sitting quietly with me, um, then all these other activities of my life, there's just a big difference between those two things. Um, whether it's mowing the lawn or grading papers or taking a walk with my mother or teaching classes or driving in traffic or buying groceries, um, talking on the phone with friends, all these activities just seem radically different from sitting in Zazen. Um, and um, so I, I wonder about that, like where there seems to be a, a gap, uh, a difference and so I wonder, where is the mind that sits in Zazen when I'm out there doing these other things? Is it is awakening only in sitting Zazen or is it also in these other activities? So there's a story about these two Zen monks back in the 8th century in Shangxi, Shangxi province in China, um, not too far from present-day Hong Kong in the southeast region of China. I always get, when I find out where they lived, I always get a little map so I can see, just it, it makes it feel more real to me what their lives were. Um, so one of these was supposedly a student of Hui Nang, the sixth ancestor of that poem about the mirror. Um, so Hui Nang's story is that he awakened when he heard the Diamond Sutra chanted in the streets, and henceforth he started his monastic life. So there's a student of Hui Nang. We're now in another generation. Uh, his name is Nan Yue. And when he was himself a masterful teacher, another Zen adept named Matsu, and he had a dialogue about the function of Zazen or sitting meditation. And that dialogue was later included first in one of the lamp records that, that gives us all the ancestors and their stories. And, the, and that was many years after that. And then the Blue Cliff Record is where you can find this koan. So here's the, here's the koan. I'll, I'll read it out and then talk about it. During the Tang Dynasty era, an ascetic named Matsu was dwelling in the Chuan Fa Temple. All day he sat meditating. Nan Yue knew he was a vessel of Dharma and went to question him. Great worthy, what are you aiming at by sitting meditation? Matsu replied, I aim to become a Buddha. Nan Yue then took a tile and began to rub it on a rock in front of the hermitage. Matsu asked him what he was doing rubbing a tile. Nanue said, I am polishing it to make a mirror. Matsu said, how can you make a mirror by polishing a tile? Nanue said, granted that rubbing a tile will not make a mirror, how can sitting meditation make a Buddha? Matsu asked, then what would be right? Nanue said, it is like the case of an ox pulling a cart. If the cart does not go, would it be right to hit the cart or would it be right to hit the ox? Matsu did not reply. Nanyue went on to say, do you think you are practicing sitting meditation or do you think you are practicing sitting Buddhahood? If you are practicing sitting meditation, meditation is not sitting or lying. 
if you are practicing sitting Buddhahood, Buddha is not a fixed form. In the midst of transitory things, one should neither grasp nor reject. If you keep the Buddha seated, this is murdering the Buddha. If you cling to the form of sitting, this is not attaining its inner principle. Matsu heard this teaching as if he were drinking ambrosia. He bowed and asked, how shall I concentrate so as to merge with formless absorption? Nanyue said, your study of the teaching of the mind ground is like planting seeds. My expounding the essence of reality may be likened to the moisture from the sky. Circumstances are meat for you, so you shall see the way. So I know it's hard to retain all the, all the elements of this dialogue when you're hearing it rather than reading it. So I'll look at it in parts. The first part is the exchange that includes a kind of joke. A man is sitting zazen, wholeheartedly practicing the way to awakening, and another man teases him a little with this uh, idea that sitting zazen in hopes of becoming a Buddha is about as absurd as polishing a tile to become, to make it turn into a precious mirror. So I can see that big gap. Um, and here I am, this impatient, greedy, needy, grasping, fleeing person. And there it is, this sparkling, abundant, splendid, fully itself Buddha nature. Um, am I it? Surely not. <laughs> um, don't I need a total overhaul? <laughs> before I can come before it and show my face. I feel a lot of kinship with Sean Shui when I think about this, who imagines that we really need a lot of work wiping the dust from the mirror before we can see it. So in the first part of the dialogue, Nan Yue is nudging Matsu and asking him to look at what seems to be a big wide gap between this activity of sitting zazen and the luminosity of Buddha mind. So now here comes the second part. When Matsu responds by putting the question back to Nan Yue, asking him what would be right, Nan Yue answers with yet another analogy, this time about the ox and the cart. It is like the case of an ox pulling a cart. If the cart does not go, would it be right to hit the cart or would it be right to hit the ox? <laughs> and Matsu stays silent this time. Uh, it seems a, like a pretty silly analogy. And so, of course, he wouldn't hit the cart to make the ox move, you think? Um, so there must be something more to it if someone as wise as Nanyue would ask that question and use that analogy. Um, so I'm only going to say a little bit about it now, and then we'll leave more of it to open up later. Um, he, there are these two parts to this analogy, the ox, and the, which is a sentient being, and the cart, which is insentient. And then maybe we could also think, what's the cart holding? So we're just leaving that open for you to think about. So when Matsu remains silent, Wisely, I think, Nanyue gives him yet another thing to think about, this time asking him to consider the assumptions he brings to Zazen. 
He's checking to see if matzah is stuck in the actual physical form of sitting zazen. Is he thinking he's becoming a Buddha by sitting like a Buddha? We can see the Buddha on the altar here. And when we sit, we sit in that same posture. We have our hands in that universal mudra. We have our eyes slanted downward a bit, but open. We're following a long tradition of this, this actual form of sitting. Of course, we can sit in a chair and we can lie down and we can stand to do the same thing. Um, so the question here is this physical form. Um, so Nanyue is asking, are you missing the idea that Buddha nature is formless? It's not just the posture of sitting. And if Matsu thinks Buddha nature is tied to form, that of Zazen, then he's killing what's essential about it. So it's a funny thing to, to realize that when you see how important Zazen is to our school, all these famous koans that we read about every once in a while, it's very rare to find someone waking up in Zazen. Most of them, the awakening happens in everyday life. So there's one who wakes up when he sees his reflection in the water as he crosses a stream. There's one who wakes up when her bucket breaks and the moon that was reflected in it disappears. There's the sixth ancestor who woke up when he was out on the street and heard the Diamond Sutra chanted and so on and on. Many, many, many of these koans, they're all out doing something else. Um, so there was a good length of time when people thought this tile polishing dialogue discounted the centrality of Zazen in our practice. And it wasn't until Dogen came along in the 13th century and reinterpreted it that people started to see that it was an endorsement of Zazen while also avoiding making Zazen a means to an end. Dogen wrote his fascicle Zazenshin in 1242 while he was still living in Kyoto, not long before he took his monks to the mountains to practice. He endorses the necessity of cultivation, that is the cultivation of Buddha nature in Zazen, even as he demonstrates its unity with everyday awakening, all every part of our lives. So as I said, Nanyue's question to Matsu is as to what he's doing sitting in meditation seems and was often seen by the old masters as a way of laughing at the idea that Zazen will make a Buddha. Uh, in that traditional approach, Matsu's sitting is vain. He's the straw man for the argument condemning continual cultivation. Instead, Dogen interprets the koan to mean the opposite. Zazen, this polishing of the tile of the body and mind, is itself the enactment of Buddhahood. So I won't solve all your questions and doubts about this koan this morning. We'll come back to it again in um, some more study of it. Um, but it's good just to let it swim around in your mind so you can think about what it means to you and your practice. Um, I do want to think about the mirror again. Um, 
it would have been a luxury item uh, in the 8th century when the dialogue between Nanue and Matsu took place. These mirrors would have been highly polished on one side, as I said, and then the other side covered in these intricate patterns. They would have had birds and dragons and serpents and deities and abstract patterns, inscriptions, inlays of jade and silver on them. Uh, the Silk Road had been long since opened and trade having these trade routes to India and Persia and Egypt. So all these different aesthetic elements would have been brought in from all over the world at that time. Um, so since we're moving from one metaphor or analogy to another, we could think about this mirror, the way it looked to them at that time. It seems like it's not too great a stretch to think of the, these ancient bronze mirrors as symbols of the self that we work with. There is the mirror side that has the capacity to reflect what comes before it without adding or shaping, um, taking it just as it is. And there's that other side that spends all kinds of fanciful designs inscribing them onto the surface. We can't have one without the other. Um, in the Genjo Koan, Dogen traced this inseparable relationship between practice and enlightenment when he wrote, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, the, your body and mind as well as the bodies and minds of others drop away. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. The no trace of the great mirror wisdom is always readily accessible to us. It infuses everything we see and do. And we also need to apply effort as we work to make this world the compassionate and safe place that we know it can be. <laughs>